Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God, divine love, ground of our being, I pray and ask that this Christian life would be good, good enough to hold us and to heal us and to free us and to inspire us toward ever more abundant life. Amen. And please be seated. This morning, we conclude a five-week sermon series titled, Why Be Christian?, which has been exploring nonviolent and non-dominion reasons for identifying as a Christian today in 2023. So far, we've talked about the need for a trellis, the human need for a trellis, a framework upon which we build our lives. A couple of core facets to a Christian trellis include a sacred story and a common table a sacred story that tethers us to a divine invitation, which is for we humans to grow up into more and more wholeness and goodness and love. And a common table open to all around which we experience belonging through the dappled divinity of humans. Together, our sacred story and common table, our Christian trellis, encourages lives lived out in ever-increasing love. Uh, We've also talked about the human compulsion for good. Like there's something in us that wants to grow toward good. There's something around us and under us and in it all that is pulling everything forward toward the good. But then this is often hindered by what is called the ego. And within Christianity is our teacher Jesus who invites us into a way of wisdom that leads not only to our own flourishing but to the flourishing of all especially those who dominate societies and cultures, undervalue, misuse, and harm. And then last week, we talked about the human need for linguistic containers that help us to make meaning of this mysterious thing called life through the words that we speak and the stories that we tell. In 1637, René Descartes wrote these now famous words in his discourse on method. I think, therefore... I am. We've heard this before. I think, therefore, I am. And this phrase captured the time so well, the birth of science, the enlightenment, the age of reason. I think, therefore, I am. In 1904, French sculptor Auguste Rodin created what is now called the thinker. Can you picture that sculpture? Large bronze sculpture, muscular nude man. He sits sits bent over, elbow on knee, chin on the back of his hand. He's alive with thought. Or if you look at the sculpture for long, you might say he is burdened with thought. But we all get the point. To think is to exist. To think is to be human. 
Of course, Western Christianity, Protestant Christianity in particular, was birthed from this perspective on and value for thinking. It came out of the same waters of I think, therefore I am. And so it isn't really surprising that thinking the right kinds of thoughts and believing the right kinds of ideas have become hallmarks of Western Protestant Christianity. It's for this reason that when we hear the word Christianity, many of us immediately go to thinking these kinds of thoughts, believing these kinds of truths. Now, picture with me for a moment Jesus. He isn't waking up early and finding some quiet space to just breathe and to be. He isn't walking through a town or talking with people near a well or welcoming children into his embrace or weeping at tragedy or overflowing with gratitude or breaking bread or pouring wine or agonizing in a garden or suffering or dying. He's not doing any of those things. Jesus, let's just think of Jesus as the thinker. Stoic, sitting, bent over, elbow on knee, chin on back of hand, isolated in all of his thoughts. I think, therefore I am. Follow me. (laughs) How does that picture of Jesus sit with you? It doesn't land well, does it? I mean, thinking is certainly part of it. And when I say it, I'm thinking about being alive, but There's so much more to our human existence than thinking, right? Like, first of all, we have these bodies, our sweating, breathing, crying, laughing, belching, sexing, eating, drinking, sniffing, feeling, these feeling bodies. And then, of course, there's the soul, which in regards to humans is simply defined as the spiritual or immaterial parts. How's that? The soul, the spiritual or immaterial parts. And those parts, although invisible, are an enormous aspect of who we are, of what makes each of us, us. Now, to be clear, thinking is certainly part of that which is spiritual or immaterial, but the spiritual, the immaterial that makes us, us, includes so much more than thinking, right? Like the experience of wonder that makes you stand on your tiptoes, spread out your arms, Lift your face to heaven and to declare this is so amazing. That does something inside of you, doesn't it? Can you remember the last time you observed a sunset or watched a crashing wave or watched the sun rise or sat in a moment of utter wonder as you got to the end of a movie that just touched you deeply? That thing called awe or wonder is powerful for us humans. Or the feeling of gratitude that makes you want to lay flat on the ground, face smashed on the floor while you eke out the words, thank you. Thank you for this. Again and again and again. That is part of being human. Or the release of angst. That unclenching of that knot deep inside of yourself when you finally get to that point in life when you can, not because of shame or guilt, but with total integration and liberation, whisper the words, I forgive you. That is part of being human. You see what I'm getting at? I'm attempting to get at the very real and very human experiences of awe or gratitude or mercy or joy or sorrow or hope or despair because the spiritual is very much, very much a part of who we are. 
And so if religion is to be truly good and helpful for human flourishing, then it must, it absolutely must participate in nurturing more than correct thinking or belief, which has been an overemphasis of Western Protestant Christianity for hundreds of years. If religion is to be truly good and helpful for human flourishing, it must participate in nurturing the spiritual aspects of our existence. And although our Western Protestant Christianity has overemphasized thinking for hundreds of years now, Christianity, Christianity in itself actually has a rich heritage of nurturing the spiritual. And it begins with our sacred text. If we read our sacred text carefully, like if we engage our text beyond it being something that gives us statements or ideas that we must believe up here in our brains, which is how many of us have been taught to read the Bible, but if we just engage it as sacred literature, then we quickly come to notice the spiritual aspects of human existence everywhere. In this morning's reading from the Hebrew Scriptures, we heard Job reflecting on the infinite, the all-powerful creator who holds all of this together. And from the New Testament reading this morning, the Apostle Paul, after he's just gotten through trying to explain the difference between Jew and Gentile and how God favors the Jews, but is also for the Gentiles, he kind of lays out this systematic thinking of how everybody is being wrapped up into the story of God. He simply concludes, oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. It's just a wonder, isn't it? In a New York Times article by Hope Reese titled, How a Bit of Awe Can Improve Your Health, Reese explains, awe can mean many things. It could be witnessing a total solar eclipse or seeing your child take her first steps. But while many of us know it when we feel it, awe is not easy to define. Awe is the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your understanding of the world said Dachner Keltner, a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley. It's vast, yes, but awe is also simpler than we think. It's accessible to everyone, he writes in his book, Awe, the New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. According to Keltner, awe is critical to our well-being. He also explains that joy is critical to our well-being, contentment is critical to our well-being, and experiences of love are critical to our well-being. In fact, Keltner's research demonstrates that awe has tremendous health benefits that include calming down our nervous system. Could we use some of that today? Triggering the release of oxycodone, the love hormone that promotes trust and bonding. I think we humans could use a lot more trust and bonding, couldn't we? Dr. Muskowitz, who has studied how positive emotions help people cope with stress, explains intentional awe experiences like walks in nature, collective movement, dance, or ceremonies can improve psychological well-being. Isn't that incredible? Oh, the goodness of a life that nurtures awe and wonder. Besides on wonder throughout our sacred text is the practice of gratitude. It's just everywhere. The Patriarchs are pouring water over rocks, saying thank you to the infinite. Israel has feasts in which gratitude becomes the central theme. Jesus seems to be giving thanks all of the time. Gratitude is everywhere. 
In an article by professors of psychology Joshua Brown and Joel Wong titled How Gratitude Changes You and Your Brain, they write, recent evidence suggests that a promising clinical approach is to complement psychological counseling with additional activities that are not too taxing for clients but yield high results. In our own research, we have zeroed in on one such activity, the practice of gratitude. Indeed, many studies over the past decade have found that people who consciously count their blessings tend to be happier. After concluding clinical testing, Brown and Wong concluded four psychological benefits to the embodiment of gratitude. First, gratitude unshackles us from toxic emotions. It's interesting. Second, gratitude helps us even if we don't share it. That is to say, like, maybe just journaling on our own or having a practice in the morning or at night before we go to bed where we just rehearse or remember some of the things that we're so grateful for. Even if we don't share those things, it has immense benefit to us humans. Third, gratitude's benefits take time. So it's not, it's not enough to just do it once or twice because of our uh, evolutionary DNA. We're critical beings. And that's what's natural. And so we have to begin to practice gratitude in order, to it to, in order for it to take effect and to have benefits. And then fourth, gratitude has lasting positive effects on the brain. So if we can inculcate our lives with a practice of gratitude, it will actually rewire our brains in ways that make for greater brain health. Isn't that incredible? Oh, the goodness of a life spilling over in gratitude. And then there's this thing called forgiveness. It's something that the patriarchs regularly wrestle with. Israel actually created rituals and ceremonies to encourage its expression. It was that important. It's a word that Jesus uses about 50 times in the Gospels, and it's throughout the Apostle Paul's writings. It's as if feeling and deeply resting into an economy of forgiveness is absolutely essential to human flourishing. In a study by psychologist Charlotte Whitviliot, people were asked to think about someone who had hurt them, mistreated them, or offended them. While they pondered this, she monitored their blood pressure, heart rate, facial muscle tension, and sweat gland activities. According to the study, when people recalled a past offense, their physical arousal soared. Maybe yours is soaring right now as you think about something. Their blood pressure and heart rate increased, and they sweated more. The study found that ruminating on past wrongs was stressful and unpleasant, causing them to feel angry, sad, anxious, and less in control. In contrast, the study then asked the participants to empathize with or to imagine forgiving those who wronged them. The results of practiced forgiveness made physical arousal diminish, and the participants showed not much more stress than normal wakefulness produces. Is that incredible? Oh, the goodness of a life awash in the rivers of forgiveness. Why be Christian? I believe that there are many great answers to this question, and over the past few weeks, we've offered a handful of answers. Why be Christian? Because we humans need a trellis to build our lives upon. And Christianity provides a sacred story and common table that function as a trellis that ground us in and orient us toward the infinite who is love. Why be Christian? Because we humans have a compulsion for good, which is often hindered by ego, and Christianity holds out Jesus as a Messiah, a Savior, who invites students into practicing following his way of being, which is to say, follow in his way of love. 
Why be Christian? Because we humans are in need of linguistic containers that help us to make meaning of this mysterious thing called existence. And Christianity bestows upon us an ecology of language that imperfectly yet powerfully assists us in the deeply human work of making meaning of reality with words. Why be Christian? Because we humans thrive when our spirituality is intentionally nurtured. And Christianity provides us with words, metaphors, songs, stories, feasts, liturgies, ceremonies, and practices that are intentional to cultivate the spiritual aspects of our lives. When I introduced this sermon series at the beginning of August, I shared that the word religion is derived from the Latin word religio, which is derived from the Latin religare. Re meaning back and legare meaning to bind. To bind back together. In what seems to be our increasingly fractured world, filled with what seems to be our increasingly fractured selves, the work of being bound back together feels more important and sacred to me now than I think it ever has. In that same introductory sermon, I also shared that it's from this Latin word religare that we get the English word ligament. I love this so much. Religion at its essence is ligaments. Short bands of tough, flexible, fibrous connective tissue called trellis, a sacred story and a common table. Short bands of tough, flexible, fibrous connective tissue called the desire for good, into which Jesus calls, follow me. Short bands of tough, flexible, fibrous connective tissue called linguistic containers, words, metaphors, and stories that help to make meaning of it all Short bands of tough, flexible, fibrous connective tissues called spirituality that include songs and feasts and liturgies and ceremonies and practices that help us to engage that impermanent but deeply meaningful, non-material part of ourselves. Religious ligaments that exist to bind us back together as whole, integrated, ever-becoming and loving humans. That's why we propose here at Pearl to live a Christian life. Now, as I begin to conclude, I want to try and be very clear. I do not think that humans must identify with a particular religion, even though every human is religious. Here's what I mean by that. There are capital R religions, right? Like there is Judaism and Islam and Christianity and Buddhism and, and Hinduism, etc. And these capital R religions, if they are truly nonviolent and truly non-dominion focused, that's the, the caveat. These capital R religions provide holistic systems that exist to bind humans together. But capital R religions don't have a monopoly on the ligaments that bind humans together. Like, some humans are finding a few ligaments in their book club, and that's great. And they're finding a few more ligaments in their weekly friend's dinner, and that's great. And they're finding a few more ligaments in that book and in that song or in that show or in that movie, and, and that's great. You, do you see what I'm saying here? We humans are all religious. In that, we're all being held together by stories and tables and words and metaphors and stories and songs and celebrations and practices that give shape to how we understand this world and our place in it. And some, even many, are held and thrive by weaving together their own meaning-making of ligaments. And that is absolutely okay. It's totally okay. 
But there are others, and I am among them, who appreciate and benefit from capital R religion. Like these religions that have existed for millennia, offering we modern people a tradition of ancient wisdom into which we can enter, learn to swim, and drink down to their dregs. At Pearl, we are cultivating nonviolent and non-dominion Christian life that exists to hold us together. It's what we're trying to do. A sacred story shaped by divine love, a common table around which diverse people gather, a way of wisdom that follows in the footsteps of Jesus, a linguistic container filled with words, metaphors, and stories that give shape to how we see everything, and particular attention paid to our very real and very human spirituality. Experiences such as awe, gratitude, mercy, joy, sorrow, hope, and despair. Cultivated by the scriptures and songs and celebrations and ceremonies and practices that mark our lives day by day and church season by church season. For the longest time, because violent and dominion Christianity, uh, I felt embarrassed to identify as a Christian. Has anybody felt that? Right? Like national Christianity, the far right, all of these extreme things. God loves everybody, but very few are going to go to heaven and the majority are going to go. Like just all of these things made it really hard for me to be Christian or to identify as Christian or to say to somebody, I, I identify as a Christian out loud. There were times where I wondered if I can be Christian. At times I thought I would have to walk away. And I know that many of you have wrestled with this as well. But what we're trying to do together here, like a commitment to nonviolence and non-dominion religious life, our intention of expressing a sacred story and to extending a common table to animate lives not by fear, shame, guilt, or duty, but by love, our devotion to deep yet humble Christianity, I am personally finding that to be good, very good for my life and for my ever-increasing fractured self as I come out of this thing called COVID. (laughs) And I can now say with much more liberation and integration that I am finding great delight in Christian life together. It feels good to say, I am finding great delight in Christian life together. I don't know how you're put together, where you're at, what kind of ligaments you need, but, but if you need capital R religion, I want to invite you ever more deeply into the Christian story table way of Jesus, linguistic containers, and spirituality that we're trying to cultivate here at Pearl for the sake of love and hope of human flourishing. This isn't the way, but it is a way, and we hope it makes meaning for your life. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.